Welcome to the Positivity Podcast, where we explore the skills and strategies of personal development with cutting-edge researchers, authors, entrepreneurs, and experts. Hello, everybody. This has been an interview I have really, really been looking forward to, mainly because of how big of a heart this guest has. So this episode explores the question, how can you cultivate the impulse to give? And in this episode, we have Matthew Richard, who's a Buddhist monk in Nepal, and he has TED Talks that you might have seen on happiness, one on happiness, one on altruism, that that together have over 8 million views. And in this episode, we deconstruct how to cultivate this urge to give in our own hearts to be altruistic. We also talk about Matthew's journey from the intellectual elites in France to a monastery in Nepal, meditation, self-love, how to evaluate the effectiveness of an altruistic act, as well as habits to achieve a meditative mindset throughout the day, and why some reporters call Matthew the happiest man in the world, but he disagrees. The talk has since helped me think about how to push the boundaries of my own giving, as well as how to better delight my friends and family in my own life. And, and interestingly enough, we also talk about how giving can help make you happier too. All right, let's jump in. Matthew, thank you so much for joining me. I can see um, you're in France now, so this is a, an international podcast episode, and I see you have some beautiful artwork in the background of your your room. Or where where are you right now? Well, it's uh, the the art you see is my mother's painting. She's 92 years old, and she's a well-known painter in France. And um, well. I'm in Dordogne, uh, then on my way back to Nepal and Tibet uh, at the end of the month, wow. where we we carry humanitarian projects. Uh, know after the two main earthquakes in Nepal, yeah, uh, the 400 aftershocks, uh, we manage with uh, our, our foundation Karuna Sechen. Karuna means compassion. Sechen mm. is the name of our monastery. We manage to uh, bring help to over 200,000 people. Wow. Uh, each of them at least 15 days of food supply and medical assistance when needed and temporary shelter, preventing um, you know, child and woman trafficking, things like that. So we were in four, 550 villages. And then from the spiritual side and the cultural heritage side, we also have to repair our monastery that yeah. has been severely damaged, which uh, 600 monks live there. It's a kind of place where... You know, compassion is being taught as long, along with wisdom, and they actually put that in action since uh, for one month, uh, those monks went to many, many villages and uh, at Grest sort of uh, were very engaged in bringing help. And so there was even a newspaper article saying they do what they preach, which is a good thing. Yeah. <laughs> I'm interested, given all the work you're doing now, where did it all start? I know that you come from a very different background than... Not yes, very different, course. but I'd love to hear the journey of what 
originally okay. where you started and how you got to this place yes. of altruism and writing about it? Well, you know, from certain perspective, it might seem a very, uh, do you say, unusual journey mm -hmm. and some sort of, uh, I won't say chaotic, but with big, apparent big changes. Mm -hmm. But in fact, you know, I, I like to compare it to a, to a travel, you know, in the mountains or across the oceans. You know, when, say, you are in a beautiful valley somewhere in the Himalayas, then you climb a mountain pass, and another valley comes. You know, again, it's different, but it doesn't mean that you are slamming the door on the valley that you left. You just discover another valley, another step, another chapter in your life. So, yes, I started in living first in the countryside, then for my secondary studies in Paris, and I was born in a quite uh, intellectual family. My father was a well-known French philosopher known as Jean-François Revel. That was his pen name. My mother, as I said, is a, a well-known painter. She, she was friend with all the great painters of her time. because She's 92 now, like Chagall and André Breton and many others and well-known French contemporary painters. And uh, so... You know, myself, I was uh, playing classical music, so I met great musicians, and I then uh, did scientific studies and uh, did a PhD at Pasteur Institute, which is a famous research center in Paris. And I was in the lab, which was then a very small lab, of two French Nobel Prize, François Jacob and Jacques Monod, who helped finding how, after the DNA was found by Watson and Crick, uh, they found how the DNA is being transcribed into proteins and so forth. Uh, and so I was studying cell division. So I did mm. six years of PhD there. But as I was doing the PhD, <laughs> I started traveling to India, northern India, where I met great spiritual masters, uh, Tibetan masters who fled the communist invasion of Tibet. There I was extremely inspired. The reason is, you know, so far, I had met great philosophers, musicians, scientists, gardeners, you know, simple people, uh, you know, supposed to be genius people. But there was something puzzling. You know, you could see wonderful gardeners and very difficult to be philosophers. <laughs> so there was no obvious correlation huh. between a certain type of genius, whether it's playing the piano or mathematics or whatever, and human qualities. Now, there was quite different what I found uh, in the Himalayas um, near those spiritual teachers. There was a complete adequation between what they, what, they, what they manifest, the way they act, the way they speak, and what they're supposed to represent, which is wisdom and compassion. Hmm. So you cannot just speak out wisdom and compassion. You have to embody wisdom and compassion every single moment and I must say that some of those teachers, I spent 15 years, day and night almost, with them, and I never saw any discrepancy between the teachings and, and what they were. So that means the messengers become the message. So that is a completely different picture hmm. because now they show you what a human being can become, a good human being. It's different than just teaching you a particular skill, like mm -hmm. playing the piano or whatever. So I, I could imagine a lot of people listening, including myself, are really excited by this vision of thinking as a way of being, as a way of kind of cultivating themselves. 
where should they start and what is an effective practice look like to develop altruism? What's something that they can do in one day? What's something that they can do every day? And if, yeah, I guess starting there. What 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 literal <laughs> literal things? And maybe maybe well, I'm not in, maybe in I'm not asking. I don't know. Except maybe <laughs> could you could something... you do a boot camp? And it's funny in um, the computer science scene, there are these things called hackathons, which is basically a weekend. Not hacking as in breaking into things. It's more of just I typing see. on computers, where you do a weekend long sprint and students barely sleep and they're building something from scratch and it's amazing because of the energy there and kind of the peer support and all the <laughs> all the people there they're really able to build these amazing things in such a short amount of time because there's such intense focus if you were to have a okay. intense focus transformative well, we, we do that in our monastery we have every year a few ceremonies that go day and night for eight days okay. so that's a one week hecaton or whatever you call that yeah so that's very intense. That allows you to really fully immerse yourself into something. Mm -hmm. And that full immersion will certainly you open your eyes and your heart on many things. I mean, if you think 22 hours on compassion in 20, among 24 hours, you know, try to remain awake, that's bound to be <laughs> make some impression in your mind because it will go so deep and it will have filled so much your mind. What sort of content well, is, is... Well, I mean, usually yeah. we don't do actually that very much. What we do, <laughs> we think that, you know, well, it's a good thing yeah. as an eye-opening. Mm -hmm. It was a big experience. Like you go to Mother Teresa's uh, auspices in Calcutta for one week. You know, it's a, people change, can change their life. Okay, no, but that's not enough. You have to somehow practice something that you also start a process of transformation. So that process, once your eye has been opened by something, you know, you discovered something. You went and you were confronted with the misery of a people in famine. Do you find conflict. that do you find that to be the one of the first triggers in people realizing they have to be out It depends for people. It could be yeah. be confronted with misery, it could be seeing people in famine, it could be going to a slaughterhouse and seeing these billions of animals being killed every year and say that's enough. Finish. I'm not going to you know, eat at the cost of others' life and suffering. It could be like one of these eye-opener, but it could be also a positive eye-opener, like mm -hmm. meeting someone like the Dalai Lama or some of the teachers I met. And you say, oh, look at this person. You know, so compassionate, so kind, mm -hmm. so simple. So there will be the, the negative, seeing the immensity of suffering, mm -hmm. or the very positive, seeing the extraordinary qualities of extraordinary human beings that inspire you, someone like Martin Luther King. So what about spending a whole day with Martin Luther King or Gandhi? Mm -hmm. What a life-changing experience. So whether it's a negative, seeing the suffering, or positive, seeing those great role models, it could change. But now, with that, what do you do? You have to practice. You know, Re Real quick on, on those role models. Do mm. you, do you, have you created any of those types of experiences for the people who you've worked with to kind of trigger their... How do you say? Have you created those sorts of experiences for people yourself to, as an entryway yeah, just, into altruism? Or, you mean like myself? Yeah. Myself, I'm just like the sweeper in my monastery. I mean, I, I'm nobody <laughs> special. We are all a group of friends that we do with different capacities. Some yeah. of them have been longer in the field, mm -hmm. but we don't have any sense of... Uh, 
as we say, kind of hierarchy. One is the boss. One okay. We just do what we can with our own capacities. That's the best way. We are very self-organizing horizontal structure. We, mm -hmm. I don't like anything of so-called, you know, big shots and stuff like that. Yeah. Because the living example of my teacher, they were so humble. They spent some time with the Dalai Lama. One of the main teaching, as I'm, I'm his French interpreter, one of the main teaching I always get when I spend a week with him is how humble he is. No, he's never, he always says, I come to you as a human being meeting another human being. If I come at the Dalai Lama, we have four degrees of separation. First, I'm, I'm not just a human being, I'm a Tibetan. Then second, I'm a, I'm a Buddhist monk. Then I'm a teacher. Then I'm the Dalai Lama. So we are very far apart. So these things we don't need. We should be human beings next to human beings, and then, then we do what, the best we can. So now, once you have this uh, <laughs> eye-opening experience, life-changing experience, I think we need to cultivate that. You need to nurture that. So that's the practice. So we might call it meditation or mm -hmm. mind training. doesn't matter. So this is the second it's, step, you'd say. Well, it's just like, for instance, you might uh, you know, have a, a plant and, and you... You, you know, it's nice to put it a bucket of water if it's very dry. But if you only do that every two months, the plant will die in between. So you need to water it every day. And that's practice, mm -hmm. practice and practice. So how do you practice? Well, like any other thing, what is surprised me all the time is that people know that they have to learn in school. They have to learn professional skills. I mean, all life is about learning some skills, isn't it? Mm -hmm. Whether playing music, name it. It's all, any skills requires training. Nobody is born knowing how to read and write, to play chess, to solve uh, differential equations and stuff like that. It's impossible. So then what is amazed me is why do we expect that on the level of human qualities, like uh, say altruism or emotional balance or uh, inner freedom, uh, inner peace, all those, why Why should they be at the best optimal level right from the start? Well, I think it would be contrary to everything else we know in life. So that's why we need to train those just as we train to learn mathematics. Hmm. Yeah, I, I think something that I've seen, because I've been meditating for a bunch of years now, is a lot of people see peace and inner peace and maybe altruism too, as sort of a quality that people inhabit rather than something you can actually cultivate and something that is worked towards. Why are you meditating then? If you <laughs> Meditation, if you look at the Sanskrit words, mm -hmm. means bhavana, means cultivate. If you look at the Tibetan word, gom means to become familiar with something. So how do you become familiar with something? By doing it again and again and again. So that's the only way, you know, that you learn to play the piano. You know, I, I've been raised in the, near the sea and I swam since I was very young, but I never learned freestyle swimming. So now I'm, I'm almost 70. Five, six years ago, I started freestyle. <laughs> <laughs> I don't have many occasions to swim because the Himalaya is very steep. But sometimes my, my fall down the waterfall I swim in lakes and stuff like that and other places. Now, you know, I realize whenever I have a chance to swim, I keep on seeing differences, how to become more smooth, to become better, to, f to flow better in the water. 
So it's a process. There's no way except training. So like, well, how do you train in compassion or loving kindness? Well, you begin, just like you begin swimming, you swim. So what do you do? You bring loving kindness in your mind, okay? You fill your mind with this loving kindness. It's what, is that, what does that look like? Or what are some examples? Well, imagine that you see someone you really love. Not just like romantic love that you are completely passionate that you can sleep and cannot eat anymore. Not that one. Like someone you just want something good for that person. It could be your child. It could be a parent, a companion, even a small animal. You know, the only thing you wish may be happy, may be fine, may be healthy, may be spared suffering. Your, your heart is full of benevolence to that person. That happens, no? Of mm -hmm. course it happens. So then, usually it happens and then it goes. Because after a few minutes, something else comes in your mind. You get up, you go, so the child goes away, and something happens, you know, and you, you, you move to something else. What about nurturing that very strong, pure uh, sort of state of mind of mm. loving kindness, unconditional love? Now, instead of moving to something else, you start letting fill your mental landscape completely. If it declines, you revive it. If you are distracted, you come back to it. If it's sort of dim, you make it more bright, more present. And this is mostly just by refocusing your attention. Focusing and also yeah. not only the being there, but the quality of it. You know, mm -hmm. you could be focusing in a very dull, sort of sleepy way, kind of boring, <laughs> <laughs> but make it make it very sparkling, you know, bright and intense. This is this love that is warm and shining, if you can give some images, you know. It's like glowing, mm -hmm. so very vivid. And so then, again, uh, remedy to the defects. If you do it for 20 minutes, half an hour, the two main defects is one is sinking, you know, it becomes dull, and you may fall asleep. And so then you revive it. It, become, it has to become more clear and sharp. And the other, other, other uh, defect is the opposite, is too busy. The mind becomes too active and becomes distracted. So then you just have to bring back your attention and calm down a little bit the mind so that your mind remains with this altruistic love. That's no mystery. You just do it one day, two days, three days. And if you do it at a certain time in the day, like 10, 15 minutes or 20 minutes, the good thing is to rekindle that many times in the day, even very, very short, even 10 seconds. You know, at some moment, 10 seconds lull, oh, loving kindness, altruistic love, compassion. And then you look around and think, oh, whoever you see, whoever you can think, whether it's person, birds, animals, may they be happy, may they be safe, just 10 seconds. Your mind is full of this loving kindness. And if you repeat that often, this kind of stream that is keeps on going throughout the day, even you are engaged in other activities. But mm. to, in order that to happen, you have to trigger that stream. You know, it's not going to happen just because you wish uh, as a you know, uh, wishful thinking. Nothing happened with wishful yeah. thinking. It, it's interesting hearing you say the word trigger. That's something that I've found to be really effective. I've had a, a couple friends who meditate who say what they try to do is they try to tie it to something they do in their day. So every morning they will 
turn on their coffee machine and it'll grind for three minutes and make the coffee. And that's when they'll trigger their, their thoughts of positivity and emotion and, you know, care and loving kindness. And maybe it's also before you eat lunch or before you go to bed and, and having those moments can kind of set you up on a routine that's effective. Yeah, that's good. But, you know, you have to have something to feed that. So I think a regular practice uh, is necessary to establish the foundation. Then mm -hmm. those things that you mentioned are to rekindle that, to restart them, to kick them off again. And in Buddhism, we have many of those things. You say when you get up and put your clothes, you say, oh, may all people who suffer from cold and, and being deprived from proper clothing, may they have this cloth. Now, if you climb out the stairs, may I take away from the pit of suffering all sentient beings who suffer and bring them to the, to the higher ground of safety. Mm -hmm. And uh, when you take a shower, you take may all the anger, hatred, pride be washed away from my mind. So you can associate every action with something positive. That is something that we find a lot in Buddhism. And that's very good to keep going. But at some point, you know, uh, you need to uh, have a, a foundation and that comes from a, a, at least a moment of regular practice. Yeah. Where you completely dedicate your mind to the practice and not just, take, it's good to take advantage of daily activities, but without the practice, it might be a little bit flimsy. And with the practice, are you closing your eyes when you meditate? What, is, what does that look like for uh, you? It doesn't matter. In, the Buddha, in Tibetan Buddhism, we don't close our eyes very much. Uh, because we see, we try to see not to block out a phenomena because you are going to be confronted with the world anyway. So better already, you know, have this kind of way of dealing with phenomena that is no more an hindrance or that doesn't distract you or that doesn't, uh, that you can still maintain this awareness, this compassion, uh, not just with closed eyes. And also closing your eyes might make you go a little bit more to the dull side. Mm -hmm. Because, you know, when you cl close your eyes, <laughs> you go for a nap. <laughs> that's, that's the natural thing to do. Uh, and so if your mind is too busy, then maybe closing your eyes for a while might help. But we meditate with either fully open eyes or, or, or uh, half-open eyes. But that doesn't mean that unless we are focusing on something specific, that doesn't mean that we gaze intently at every, every everything. Mm -hmm. It might be a little bit like a panoramic view, slightly out of focus, but we don't want to try to block the sounds, the forms, the smells, but rather see them just as they are in their natural simplicity. Awesome. And so how many years have you been meditating now? I don't know. I've been, I started practicing <laughs> about 50 years ago. Wow. And I did five years of solitary retreats over the years, you know, not in one go, but if I add all the times I spend in, alone in my hermitage, it comes about five years, I, be, I think, I don't know exactly, but something like that. And I know a few years ago, um, University of Wisconsin, I think it was, did a study on you um, and your brain and deemed you one of the happiest men in the world. Um, no, they didn't. They, oh, they didn't. They didn't. <laughs> it is the. It is new, some newspapers who said. That. Oh, newspapers. <laughs> Nobody, no scientist would ever say such a stupid thing. Well, anyways, so how can you know? Yeah. How can you know the happiness of seven billion beings? <laughs> how? Isn't it? Yeah. Do do they do they put no. seven billion persons in the MRI machine? 
Maybe. Yeah, about a few, few hundred. I, University of no, Wisconsin, no, no, they're pretty good. <laughs> no, I'm kidding. No, no. But I, well, of course, they're very, very good. But <laughs> my friend Richard Davidson and others, they, they are extremely good. Yeah. But that's why they would not say such silly things. Yeah. So, so what would what the scientists say about so meditation? So what happened is we were actually yeah. studying at that time the effect of meditating exactly on my favorite subject, which is altruistic love and compassion. Mm. So not only me, but about 25 long-term meditators who had done between 10,000 and 60,000 hours of meditation over the years and studying when they engage in pure compassion, what happens in the brain. So I was, you know, chronologically one of the first one to go. So that's why when there were some you know, documentary makers and journalists, that's where these stories begin. But if you look over time now, uh, those 25 or more even experienced meditators, they all have very similar results, mm. which were all very different from untrained people. So that's the point is not whether you are a French Buddhist monk or a Tibetan nomad, a man, a woman, a lay person, or a monastic. All difference come from training. How much did you train? And so the, what they found is, yes, those who had long-term training, when they engage in compassion meditation, there are some areas of the brain connected with positive emotion, with empathy, and with other uh, sort of important uh, positive effects, which are extremely highly activated. And it is true that uh, they were activated in a, in a stronger way than anything that was previously recorded in neuroscience, which means probably a few hundred or maximum a thousand people. It has nothing to do with happiness. There's no happiness areas in the brain. It's a, it's a combination of positive factors, which, of course, contribute to happiness. I mean, altruistic love is the main thing that contributes to happiness because there's no such thing as selfish happiness. It doesn't work. It's, it's flawed from the start. So, so then there was a documentary maker, an Australian filmmaker, who said, oh, maybe this is the happiest person in the world, blah, blah, blah. Mm -hmm. So there was nothing for a while. And then a, a British newspaper, The Independent, ran a cover story with We Found Mr. Happy. And then from then on, there was no way to stop the, <laughs> the mm -hmm. whole thing. So I made many disclaimers without any uh, effect. It doesn't matter. I just relax and uh, I laugh and giggle and... Uh, and I apologize to my scientist friend. They know I didn't say that. They didn't say that either. <laughs> but it's fun. What to do? Yeah. Now, one of the things you mentioned um, when you were just speaking is there's no such thing as selfish happiness. And it got me thinking of a time, at least when, in my life, when I was going through depression and it was, it was a very difficult time. And the thought of uh, giving to someone else was almost crippling because I felt like I couldn't really take care of myself. And I think a lot of people who are going through difficult states, it's hard to think about altruism and giving when, you know, holding that thought while simultaneously holding the thought of, I need to take care of myself. And sometimes they might feel in conflict, but maybe, maybe not. What's, what sort of thoughts do you have on that? But that's not selfishness. Uh, you know, there's nothing wrong with wishing good to yourself. I mean, self-compassion, and uh, you know, and basically, you can't have genuine altruism unless you recognize deep within that you rather not suffer and rather find a way to happiness. So when you get out of the hole, when you know people sometimes 
uh, even uh, inflict harm on themselves when they when they are depressed. People who have been abused, who have been denied happiness, it's well known. You know, they cut themselves, they beat themselves. It's more often than what we think. Uh, you know, when I was doing the research on the altruism book, I found that 15% of all uh, young people between 15 and 25 in Europe, 15%, have at some point inflicted self-harm, like cutting their, their skin or something. So that's, that's traumatic. So before teaching compassion to these persons, you need to make them feel more generous, tender, affectionate uh, to themselves, that they are not too demanding to themselves, that they're they, they trying to find where could I do something else to relieve my angst or relieve my depression than just hurting myself? Would there be another, another way to be kind with my wounds, to be kind with my body, to be not to, uh, you know, all kinds of things that goes with self-compassion. So that's the initial step. What I meant by selfish happiness is the idea that... Uh, Real you know, quick, how would you direct someone to feel more generous and affectionate towards themselves? What would that look like? Would it well, be you know, very often or? other people have been abused and they, don't see, they think they have a very low image of themselves and it makes them depressed or angry. And they also don't see the possibility of happiness. So, and then sometimes they also feel that they should be they should be much better than what they think they are. You know, mm -hmm. I'm, I reproach myself not being that smart, beautiful, uh, you know, success, successful, not being the first and everything. So you have to see, well, if you, first, if you suffer, you're not the only one in the world. So many people are suffering, you know, the interdependence. And so you are together. You're not just alone feeling, uh, feeling that. And then why should you, everyone be the, the first? You know, this is so silly, the idea that everyone should be above the average. What does that mean also, this average thing? You, know, you don't have to be at the top for mathematics, for everything. You just try to be a good person. It's not something that you may be at the top of the class, but to be a good person is very fulfilling. If you imagine a very, very kind elder person you know, when you are in this very difficult state whose presence is only to comfort you, to try to give you some help, some hope, a sense of direction, a bit of a few steps in which you can climb to get out of the hole, and you can be that to yourself. You know, there are uh, therapeut therapists like uh, Paul Gilbert or Christine Neff who say, imagine a part of yourself which is like this very, very unkind very, very unconditionally kind person. No agenda, is not going to cheat you, not going to abuse you, someone you can trust. And imagine this is part of yourself which is good to yourself. So that's the whole thing about self-compassion. Now let's, if we come back to selfish happiness, this is different. Selfish happiness is mostly go with me, 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 me all the time. I don't care about others. And if I can instrumentalize others, means being selfish means not just that you care for yourself, it's fine to want to be happy, to want to be healthy, to live long, to be happy. Why not? What's wrong with that? Everyone has the same way. So there's nothing, not, nothing selfish about wanting to be well and good and mm -hmm. flourish in life. But the, when you start to instrumentalize others, to be, try to be happy at the cost of others' happiness or even worse, at the cost of their suffering, that you only see others in how they might fulfill your interest 
or how they be, can become a threat. So the whole world become instrumentalized. That's selfishness. You always relate to others in terms of self-promoting your self-interest. That does not work. Because why? It makes your life miserable. You know, me, me, me all day long, it just don't feel good. You can try. You said you're 24 hours crash course. Try to just boost the ego for 24 hours and see how terrible you will feel at the end. <laughs> Secondly, everyone will think you are a pain in the ass, if I may say so. <laughs> of course, because someone who only thinks about himself or herself, who wants to be with that kind of person? So selfish, all the time thinking just about themselves. Yeah. So then, so that's, and then it doesn't work because why it doesn't work? Because we are not separate entities that could build their happiness in their little ego bubble. We are all interdependent. Now look back at the opposite, you know, altruistic love. First of all, is the most supreme emotion, feeling this great benevolence, kindness, affection. You know, this is something that makes you feel so good. And then, of course, others will perceive you like a good person. So you will have a harmonious relation with others. It's oh, such a good guy. So nice to be with that person. And then the third thing, it will work. Why? Because that takes, that is in harmony with reality. Because we are interdependent, and interdependence is very closely related to altruism. Because interdependent means I don't want to suffer, others don't want to suffer. I realize we're all in the same boat. We have this common humanity. So realizing that is the foundation for altruism and it's also why it's going to be functional. So it's a win-win situation. The pursuit of selfish happiness is a lose-lose situation. I'd love to hear a story of a time in your life where you felt more selfish, where you, you might have been feeling the opposite of altruistic. And how does the Matthew now look back and understand that older version of himself? <laughs> well, you know... I'm not. I'm so far from being perfect, so there's no need to speak about the past. There are <laughs> moments, you know, when you drive in Tibet and you see someone far away that looks not too well, and you have to go, you know, you drive very s slowly in those mountain roads, and you see something by the road, you say, should I stop there to see what's going on and possibly help? Or I'm going somewhere for also for a good purpose to build a school or a clinic. Mm -hmm. So the idea that uh, to always, mm -hmm. always be ready and available. And sometimes you find that, you know, maybe you are tired or maybe you want to get there before night falls. You have been driving for 12 hours. And so to constantly check your state of mind and your motivation. And you find there are moments where you could have done much better or you did or said something that is, even though you didn't mean to be hurting others, I, I, I really believe uh, deep within that I could never, never, never want to willingly harm someone. That is, I think, completely gone from my mind. It's not boasting. It's just a simple fact, a simple thing. Mm -hmm. But I'm still not skillful. I, I can hurt someone by not having spent enough time to think, oh, is the, will those words or this behavior, might that harm this person? So I might, I might lack discernment. I might like mindfulness about being extremely careful and mindful of whatever mm. might be the impact of words or behavior. So that's so much to progress and constantly I say, oh, oh, this time what you say to that person, you know, if you had mind has been completely filled with benevolence, 
you would have said something slightly different. So that is a constant process of learning. That's what meditation is about. That's what mind training is about. But what is important is that you recognize the need to train uh, in becoming more altruistic, more compassionate, more caring. So one that is clearly in your mind, then even though you know it's a process, at least you have a sense of direction. So let's say that there's a group of people, let's say five people, friends, who say, we all together want to cultivate this sort of altruistic love. And we want to meet up once a week and find a way to support each other. You know, how can peers support each other in cultivating this altruistic love? And you know, if there were a group to meet, what, what should they do together? You know, are there any activities well, or things? Yeah, well, well, there's many ways. You can first cultivate altruism through meditation, mm -hmm. I mean, to mind training. And maybe there are, of course, wonderful instructors. In the United States, you have you know, many people who teach metta, which is the Pali word for loving kindness, like Sharon Salzberg and others. I think there are courses, uh, and maybe videos and stuff like that, and books for sure. And then uh, also you can meet, uh, you know, sometime to time. If like I think the Dalai Lama is in, um, in the U.S. now, meeting him and hearing him speaking about compassion, that could be a life-changing experience. So that's you will practice regularly. The other thing is to do things together. Like Aristotle used to say, you become virtuous by practicing virtue. So means uh, decide that you know, one, once a week, you, you, one time you might go, you might do a meditation on loving kindness together and compare your experience or, or read, read texts that teach that or meet a teacher who can teach you. And then another week, you might go and help some elderly or some people who are destitute or homeless. Uh, and then by doing that, you will bring the best of yourself at the surface. And so that's a, a very powerful way also to, you know, to become more altruistic by practicing it. Yeah. What would you say have been some of the most altruistic ex experiences that you've had? Most memorable? Well, well uh, you know, it's, it's uh, watching uh, the great compassion of my teacher, how they were tirelessly available to everyone, would come at any time, almost at day and night, to receive teachings, and being engaged with uh, people who were devoting their life to uh, remove suffering of others, you know, in our different humanitarian projects with incredible dedication. You know, like during the recent earthquake, our, our team in Nepal, uh, after 15 days, I, I talked to one of them. He said, oh, we are sleeping about three hours a night, but we get used to it uh, because they were so dedicated to help others. And so then, of course, you hear many stories, maybe not witnessed myself, but heard that's so inspiring. Just I quote one in the book, which... Uh, I found so wonderful. Uh, you know, in Bangladesh, you know, they, in India, they use this kind of rickshaw. This is kind of tricycle, and they carry. So there's a guy who's pedaling on the on the bicycle with three wheels, and on the back there's a seat where normally two people, but sometimes they put four or five. And you know, and you can uh, they will take them one or two kilometers away for equivalents of uh, you know thirty cents. <laughs> so this person, when he was twenty, and he had this tricycle. Uh, as, a, as, a, as his means of living. His father died in the village because there was no dispensary uh, around. And he could not also 
ask for help because he didn't know how to read and write and prepare a telegram or something. So he made the vow that he will one day build a dispensary in his village. So for 30 years, you know, he pedaled on his rickshaw, ferrying people here and there in the city. And every day, half of the little savings, you know, two, three dollars a day, that's what he would get. Half he put aside, 30 years he could build a small dispensary you know, in his village. And then, because people were so inspired, become bigger, and now it treats several hundred people every year. So that kind of, you know, example is so beautiful, so inspiring. And so I think there are many, many, many stories like that, you know, what we call unsung heroes of compassion that we don't know, but the world is full of those stories. Yeah. So a lot... Did you, sorry, did you have something else you wanted to say? No, yes. Well, we often, uh, you know, pay attention to the news which always give you the most dramatic events that happen in the world. And there's always something happening somewhere that is tragic and terrible and awful. But why they, they don't more often also have uh, those very inspiring stories? They do have from time to time, but they have a tendency to you know, give priority to the tragic events. It's good to attract our attention on, what, on injustice, on massacres, on what needs to be changed in the world. But only that, day after day, news after news, you know, it sort of makes you fall into the wicked world syndrome. You think the human beings are bad, the world is bad, which is not the case. I think we need to pay more attention to the banality of good, which is present in our lives, but we don't pay enough attention to it. Yeah. So... <clears throat> Most of our conversation so far has been focused on the individual and cultivating compassion and altruism within people. Um, I'm curious to hear your perspectives on the effectiveness of altruism. You mentioned that in the beginning one of the challenges of you're driving along and you see someone suffering on the, on the side of the road, but you're also driving to build a school in a village. And, and you know that kind of tension between giving here versus giving there can be challenging. But there's, there's no tension. They just have to think. Yeah. <laughs> no, first of all, I'm doing this for myself or for others. Mm -hmm. no, is it just that I want to go to bed very quickly or, uh, you know, something else? I have to go and build a school which is mm -hmm. maybe more efficient. So then is it for myself or for others? Is it for, if it's for others, is it for a small number or for the greater number? And then is it for the short term or the long term? So, of course, ideally, you want to be for others, for the greatest number possible, and for the long term. So that's, that's just have to think. <laughs> yeah. P pushing back a little, um, I'm, I'm picturing, you know, if I could possibly give us, let's say you could possibly give a speech somewhere that could inspire 30 people to practice more, you know. Yeah. And change, change the lives of 30 people. Or you could... But at the same time, your mother needs your help, and you're literally the only person in the world who can support her, maybe emotionally, because you know her better than anyone else. And so, you know, you, someone else can maybe fill in that talk, but you're the only person who can um, support your mom in that way. So, you know, the numbers may not be representative of the realities of the impact. Well, you know, again, you said someone else could do it. If someone else would do it, fine. It's not you don't have to do it. Why should you be obsessed by doing everything yourself? <laughs> the main thing is to 
at every occasion, at every, uh, how do you say, crossroad, to again think carefully what is the best uh, course of action to be truly altruistic and uh, how much you know, suffering and happiness is not just about numbers, it's about also uh, the impact it would have on someone's life. So, you know, to, to have a, a moderate effect on many people and have a strong uh, relief of suffering for one person, you just have to think carefully. Of course, you will not sacrifice a, a thousand person for just you know, the, taking care of one. That would be silly. Uh, that makes no sense. It is not compassionate. But you know, you have to be very do the best you can at every moment, and that it all depends. You no know, ethics should be uh, should be contextualized, should be incarnated in human situation. There's no good and bad in the absolute. It's everything depends on circumstances, uh, conditions, people. Uh, what what is it actually going to do in that particular instance? And then. I think a, a very altruistic motivation will help you to find the best course of action. Awesome. I have a couple more questions here. Um, one is, um, what are some of the biggest unanswered questions on your mind now? Well, I would like to continue my spiritual path and then continue to progress towards more wisdom and more compassion. But you know, uh, the unanswered question is, uh, are we going to go to a more altruistic society or to a more selfish individualistic one? I think I made a case uh, to those five years of research because I'm not in, I didn't invent anything. You know, I, I brought in 1,600 scientific references to, to write this 800-page book on altruism. The reason is I really wanted to make a strong case that altruism is not just an utopia, a sort of nice, uh, good feeling that is completely not realistic, but that it is the most pragmatic answer to the challenges of our times. If we look at those challenges, we have a very uh, great difficulty to reconcile the short term of the economy, for instance, the midterm, the quality of our lives, which, which spans maybe 50 years or whatever, and then the long term, which is the the fate of future generation and the environment and the biosphere that may affect in 50 years, 100 years, and so forth. But they will be there, they will suffer, but you know, it's a long term. So it's very difficult because you know, economists, you know, they solve the next crisis or they want to see their balance sheet at the end of the year. Then social workers and politicians, normally they should be uh, taking care of the next 10 years or 20 years to remedy to inequalities, to deal with poverty in the midst of plenty and so forth, but that's not the economist's job. And then environmentalists, they let you know that it's going to be a real catastrophe in 50 years, but you say, well, you know, let's see what happens in 49 years or I might not even be there. So then that, that is kind of schizophrenic uh, position. So you need a concept that allows, because I think nobody starts you know, with bad in intention. You may be unskillful, but basically, everyone would like a better world, yes. So then, for that, we need a common platform to build it together. And that's no other concept but altruism can work. Because if you do have more consideration for others, instead of having a damn selfish economy, you will have a more caring economics, more solidarity. 
economy will be at the service of society and not the opposite, not the people at the service of you know, big banks and stuff like that. If you have more consideration for others, you'll make sure that the fabric of social society is more towards solidarity, you know, uh, smoothing out inequalities and, and remitting to poverty, giving education to those in need and so forth. And if you have more consideration for others, you cannot sacrifice the fate of future generations, cause them immense suffering even before they are born. So that becomes a very, very powerful concept. So that's the main thing I try to highlight in the book, putting all the scientific research in economy, in psychology, evolution, and so forth. And that's the many unanswered question. I may not know the answer in my lifetime. Uh, will that, uh, are we will really be going as it looks like to a more cooperative society? Maybe that's the, the trait that will help us to survive from an evolutionary point of view. I hope, I'm confident it will go that way. I think I will not see it, but I really wish I could because I firmly believe that this will happen. But I would be really full of joy if I, see, if I could see it happening. If you could only make one suggestion for one thing that people could do to cultivate altruism within themselves, what would it be? Well, you know, just wish, you know, what's in any situation, the best thing you can do is having some kind of benevolence to others, even in conflict situations. You know, if you are benevolent, people might change. If they don't, well, that's it. At least you didn't go in the same way with rising animosity, anger, hatred. So you didn't fall into the same flow that you feel upset about. So you keep your dignity, you keep your peace, you did your best. So in any case, this always the best course of action is this, having this altruistic disposition and then do your best. And then that's it. And then you nothing to reproach yourself. It's probably the most efficient way. Even if it doesn't work, nothing to reproach. So I think for me, that's, this, is the, this is the best way to proceed for almost every challenge in life. Awesome. Any closing, Thank you. Any closing thoughts? No, well, I think, I well, think if I have <laughs> one motto would be to transform ourselves to better serve others and to transform ourselves to better transform the world. So, transforming ourselves to a more altruistic frame of mind. And I think that's, that's the way we can build a better world. Awesome. Thank you. Great. This was great. Thank you, Matthew. I really appreciate okay. it. Okay. Welcome. Take care. Take care. Matthew also just launched a meditation app that you can download at imagineclarity.com. It has terrific guided meditations matched with beautiful images. A good part of the revenues will be given to the Karuna Sheshen Humanitarian Projects that he mentioned in this episode.